Thanks for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. We hope this message challenges and encourages you, and we would love to see you at one of our services on Saturday evenings at 5.30 or Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30. Got a word for you? Rules. Rules, rules, rules. Rules rock. Rules are in. Rules. Perhaps you've read a book that has sold now over three million copies by a Canadian psychologist named Jordan Peterson. Twelve Rules for Life. Any of you read it? All right. Now, I guess it's not making its way into Waterstone just yet. I googled 12 rules for life, and you would be amazed now. It's an internet sensation that everyone is sharing their 12 rules. Let me just share a sampling with you. I came across a guy named Tyler Cowan who teaches economics at George Mason University, and he he blogs for a, a website called Marginal Revolution. Here's four of his rules. Number six, when shooting the basketball, give it more arc than you think is necessary, consistently. Learn how to learn from those who offend you. Cultivate mentors and be willing to serve as mentors to others. This never loses its importance. And rule number nine, I don't know. All right. I also came across another woman, a a columnist for Bloomberg, who shared her 12 rules for life. And I thought her rule number 10 was especially important. I believe it's the reason some of you have come to church today. Rule number 10. Don't try to resolve fundamental conflicts with your spouse or roommates. (laughs) The only people who win marital arguments about bedrock values are divorce lawyers. I mean, you wouldn't say, I have a free hour, I bet I could solve the Israel-Palestinian conflict and still have time for a spot of tennis. So why do you try to use the same hour to convince your spouse that potato salad should have pickles in it? She goes on, if you want pickles in your potato salad, chop up some pickles and put them on the side so you can add it to your dish. If you have radically differing ideas about tidiness, eliminate meals out and make the old car do for another few years so that you can have someone in to clean a couple of times a month. She goes on, not all conflicts can be resolved this way, but a surprising number can. You should never ever argue with your spouse about anything that could be resolved with a proper application of money or ingenuity. As for the rest, unless it is an existential threat to your future, out of control spending, once doesn't want kids, abuse, substance problem, infidelity, leave it alone. On your deathbed, your spouse will be there holding your hand. The dream house you're dying to buy will not be. Rule number 10. Yes, some of you want to clap. (laughs) Now, rules. What about the 613 rules that are in the First Testament of the Bible? 613 rules. What do we do with those? Well, moderns are divided. There's two camps 
about what to do with the rules in the Bible. On the one side, we have those who say, come on, haven't we evolved past this idea of a God thundering from Sinai, people responding in fear, oh, I'll obey, I'll obey. Shouldn't religion be based around love, especially a religion like Christianity that's centered on the most loving man who's ever lived, Jesus? Come on. And then on the other side of rules, In the Bible, we have those who say, of course we need rules. We need rules how to be a good person, rules that help us earn God's approval. We need rules, even if the rule is, I want to be the person my dog thinks I am. Whatever rules you live by, you need those rules. And by the way, if we would just post the Ten Commandments around the doorway of every public school, we would be a Christian nation again. Either the rules stunt our growth, we don't really need them, or the rules save us. Of course we need rules. What do you think about rules, specifically the 613 rules contained in the part of the Bible we now come to called the Torah, as the Hebrews called it, the law? What do you think about rules? The law. Welcome to Love This Book. We are preaching through the entire Bible in 2020, Genesis to Revelation. We are preaching it so that we can know God. Here's the story so far God made the world and everything in it, we broke the world and everything in it. God's rescue plan was to call a man and from him make a family. His name was Abraham, and from Abraham's family, He would bless every family on earth. Abraham's family ended up in Egypt where they had to endure 400 lost years of slavery. But God even then was building a nation and they were delivered by an apocalyptic display of power, plagues, especially the plague of the firstborn and the crossing of the Red Sea, which we talked about last week, which established Israel now as a nation who would bless all Nations. We learned two things last week. The Passover shows us who God is, that he's a God who saves. But he saves by substitution, by the blood of a lamb. Is it a coincidence that Jesus Christ died on Passover? And then we also learned that God displayed in weakness but still demonstrating power when Israel stood at the edge of the Red Sea and heard the hoof prints of Egypt's army behind them. They were under a death sentence. But what happened? God's power parted the sea and they walked through even their impending death. In other words, God has the power to defeat every human enemy, especially the enemy of death. And so today we find Israel two months out from those amazing events. They've gathered around Sinai, which looks something like this today on the Sinai Peninsula. Probably the text says 600,000 strong, this nation now standing here. And God's going to bring them down the law. Now, What's important is that the next 59 chapters of the Bible are all about this law through Numbers 10. They stay here at Sinai for an entire year. And we ask ourselves, what's God's doing? What's he doing having the people stay here and learn these rules? Well, before we talk specifically about the rules, let me give you what I consider to be the most important thing I'm going to 
tell you today. Are you ready? Everyone lean forward, ears perked. You ready? Here it is. I want you to leave with this. 19 comes before 20. Nineteen comes before twenty. What do I mean? What's important to know about the rules is when they come. In Exodus 19, as we're going to see in a moment, God basically says to Israel, I've delivered you out of Egypt. I accept you. You are my people. After he saves them, then he gives them the rules. Do you see it? Deliverance comes before demands. Relationship comes before requirements. Salvation comes before obedience. That's the micro. Look at it in the text in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. God saying, I accepted you. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. 19 comes before 20. In other words, the purpose of the law is not to earn God's approval and get you to heaven. That's what every other religion in the world talks about. Every other religion in the world is 20 before 19. Live a good life, God will love you. Do good things, you get to go to heaven. That's religion. That's 2019. So 2019 religion. Christianity, God's, the God of Israelites says, no, I accept you, I choose you, I deliver you and save you. Now, here are the rules for how a saved person lives. Do you see that 19 comes before 20? The purpose of the law is to help us live out the heaven in our hearts that God's already placed there. So, with that in mind, we come and we see in our text that there are three purposes of, of the law to describe how saved people live. First of all, he says, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Treasured possession. That word treasured, interesting word. It means a favorite collection. Something that you know, stirs your heart that you really like to, to do. There's an emotional connection and component to this. You know, in that world, every king, you know, they owned their land. They owned the land, they owned the houses, they owned the people, they owned the roads. Everything belonged to the king. But every king in their palace had a big room. And in that room would be their treasured possessions. Maybe a shield from a battle that the king had won. Maybe a gift from a foreign leader. Whatever really meant a lot to the king's heart, he put in that room his treasured possession. Do you have a treasured possession? I do. In a moment, I'll share it with you. But you know, let me just say that you know, I'm, a, I'm a clean freak. I don't like untidiness. And rule number 10 in our marriage with Jan, my marriage with Jan has been about what to throw out and what not to throw out. 
And I like to throw, my favorite day of the week is Thursdays when the trash comes. And that first hour after the trash comes and every trash can in the house is empty, I love that moment. Anyone with me on that? Okay, we all need help. But uh, rule number 10. Now, here's my treasured possession. Here's what I will never, ever throw out. I have saved every ticket stub from every sporting event I've attended since high school. They're all there. There's Hall of Famers that I've seen. I have the last ticket from when Larry Bird played against the Denver Nuggets the year he retired. The most precious one is right in the middle. You might see it on the top. It says Penn State. I was actually thinking of bringing this and passing it around, but there's not enough... uh, 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 disguised security people in the room to keep you from stealing my Penn State tickets. So I am not passing it around. And um, treasured possessions. You know, that's just things. That's just like weird things. What, what is it like to have a treasured possession that's another person? What does that mean? That means that there can be mutual delight. You know, if we go to Exodus 20... Where the law starts, we read this. Exodus 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's rule one. Why this history lesson? Come on, God, get to the point. We know, you know, we know you save it, but why does God take the time To say, I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Simply this, God saying to Israel, look, I listened to the deep needs of your heart. I heard your cries from misery. I came down. I accepted you. 19. Now, 20, reciprocate. I have shown that I delight in you. Now you respond by showing your delight in me. I saved you. Now here's how a saved person lives. Obey. That's the purpose of the law. To help us live as a treasured possession. To help us exchange mutual delight. Now, wait a minute. We know this. We know how this works. Have you ever been in love? Have you ever fallen in love with someone? What's that like? Well, what it's like is you begin to research who they are, what they, where they like to eat, what movies they like, what snacks they like. You begin to find ways that you can show your delight in them. I mean, your happiness becomes harnessed to their happiness, their joy and delight become very significant things to you that you can respond and give them more joy and delight. When I first met Jan back in the 80s, my favorite chair, pair of clothes was a leisure suit and a silk shirt. I was walking John Travolta. Jan comes and basically waves the finger and said, uh-uh. And I changed. I changed my whole wardrobe. Was it a law of love, a rule? No, it was delight. And you should be very thankful that she changed. I mean, look at me now. (laughs) You see, when love is in the mix, when there's delight, then the rules are just a way to delight, to please the other and to share 
joy. You know, that's why we come here week after week after week. We come here to worship, to be reminded that we are a treasured possession of God. And what we do is we come and we begin to sit down and we think, okay, how's my delight factor today? Am I delighting in God? Is he my joy? Now, the problem is, and why we need to do it week after week after week, is because our hearts are prone to wonder from the true delight. And we are listening to lesser liturgies throughout the week. We come to be reminded that our heart wanders away. And we need to snap it back to the true source of joy. I mean, we sit down here, we have space in the service, we try to do this every week, intentionally just give you a chance to think while the band does an interlude or while there's even silence or prayer. You take a deep sigh and you say, Lord, how am I doing? How are we doing? And you think to yourself, the Holy Spirit may be tapping you on the shoulder, why am I so busy? The busyness is eating me up. I mean, I don't even have a chance to sit and think about God or to read the Bible busyness. And there we have to remind ourselves, wait a minute, I am a treasured possession. My delight needs to be in God. What's this busyness about? And we look for the, you know, the sin under the sin. We look for the disordered love. The fact is that maybe some of the reason we're busy, you need to think this out. Some of the reason we're busy is because we're trying to gain approval from lesser liturgies. Maybe in our work, we want to be known as the worker, the, the one who makes things happen. Maybe we want to be known in our communities as, oh man, what a parent. They have their kids in everything. We, we want to be known and gain approval. And we walk away from the one who's already given us his approval. The only opinion, by the way, of us that counts and we put that approval on the shelf and we try to earn it by working 90 hours a week and three hours of sleep at night. We listen to lesser liturgies. We come to worship to be reminded we are a treasured possession. How about one more? We take that heavy sigh, Holy Spirit, come look at my heart. How are we doing? We realize maybe we're convicted, you know, this past week, I, I told a lie. I said something that was untrue or I stretched the truth, I fudged. What happened there in that moment when you chose to lie? What happened is that you valued that thing that the lie produced more than you valued God. You listen to a lesser liturgy. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is your God. Martin Luther. The reason we come to worship is to be reminded that we are a treasured possession. God wants us mindful of this because his whole goal in giving us the rules is so that we can learn how to delight in him. That's the first reason. The second reason God gives us the rules, we go on in the text back to chapter 19. If you obey me fully and keep my commandments, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me 
a kingdom of priests. The second reason God gives Israel his saved people the law is so that they would become a kingdom of priests. Now, the idea of kingdom we can get. It's a bunch of people living in the same place under the rule of a king. Priests, I think we often need to be reminded about their job description. The role of a priest was to build a bridge. In fact, the Latin word for priest, pontifex, is a, is a bridge. And it helps people get connected to God, and it helps God share his presence among people. That's what priests do. So, in other words, you say, Larry, what are you saying? I'm saying this, that when people interact with you this week, you will be a living, breathing experience of God to them. No pressure. You are a priest, helping people connect to God, helping God's presence settle in a person's life. You are a priest, a kingdom of priests. Jesus put it this way. Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You are a town built on a hill. You let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So, get to the point. The point, if you obey the law as my chosen people, you obey the law, then you will live a holy life and people will come to know God. Good well, not quite. There's a little bit more, a little bigger picture wrapped up than just you being. You know, <laughs> you can't be a city by yourself. You can't be a kingdom by yourself. The word priest is plural. You are a kingdom of priests. I think the bigger picture here is that what God wants to do with Waterstone, with every church, that, that, that is proclaiming Jesus as king. Every church is called to be a kingdom of priests to create such a vibrant, loving community that when the world sees how we love each other in here, they want to be a part of it. I mean, where else could you experience that? In a, especially in our culture, so divided and partisan and mean and self-absorbed where else can you go to become part of a community where people are very concerned with how you're doing and want to move towards you in that? I mean, I would submit to you that one of the scourges of our culture right now is loneliness. In fact, I came across this quote about loneliness, Edward Davies. As many as 800,000 people in England are chronically lonely. 800,000. Many more experience some degree of loneliness. 17% of older people interact with family, friends, or neighbors less than once a week. 11% do so less than once a month. It is linked loneliness to cardiovascular disease, dementia, and depression. And according to some researchers, its effect on mortality is similar to smoking and worse than obesity. Loneliness. What's the opposite of loneliness? That question is not original with me, by the way. What's the opposite of loneliness? It comes from a quote from a girl named Marina Keegan. It went viral a few years back because she was graduating from college. Sadly, tragically, just days after she wrote this, at the age of 22, she lost her life in a car accident. She wrote, we don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness, but if we did, I could say that it's what I want in life. 
what I'm grateful and thankful to have found at Yale, and what I'm scared of losing when we wake up tomorrow and leave this place. It's not quite love, and it's not quite community. It's just this feeling that there are people, an abundance of people, who are in this together, who are on your team. When the check is paid, you stay at the table. Waterstone. I'm naive enough to think that Waterstone can be a place where we find the opposite of loneliness. You say, Larry, okay, what's it look like? Well, I'm going to turn to a strange place to show you a a glimpse of what it can look like. A few years back, there was a very interesting movie that came out called Lars and the Real Girl. How many of you have seen it? It's a very interesting movie, kind of one of those independent films. Lars is a Christian Ryan Gosling, uh, there in, in the movie, he plays a Lutheran believer. But he, he goes through a patch of mental illness. He's had crushing grief in his life, and it just knocks him off the norm, and he becomes mentally ill for a season of his life, so much so that he actually, just for companionship, he's, he can't be around people, but he hears about these sex dolls on the Internet, and he orders a sex doll, and it's chaste. He actually believes she's a recovering missionary, Her name's Bianca, and he begins to have a relationship with Bianca. He begins to bring Bianca to worship services at this poor little Lutheran church in a wheelchair. And at first, as you can imagine, the pastor and the people were like, what? (laughs) They begin to understand. They know Lars. They know he's, he's one of them, and he's a believer, a Christ follower. So... They begin over time, after they have some discussions, they say, we are going to accept Lars, we are going to accept Bianca, and we are going to walk with him through this season. And they do, and they make Bianca one of their own. As Lars begins to get healthy, he begins to understand that his relationship with Bianca is going to die. And near the end of the movie, they hold a vigil, vigil, and they begin to prepare for Bianca's death. One morning, Lars comes down after a night's sleep, and we pick up the scene. He notices several older ladies from the church knitting on the couch. We brought casseroles, one of them points out, the quiet clicking of their knitting needles, the soundtrack of compassion. Lars sits quietly, moving his food around the plate. Is there something I should be doing right now? No, dear. You eat, one of them encourages him. We came over to sit, says another, and the third lady offers. That's what people do when tragedy strikes. They come over and sit. That's what we want to be. People who understand that some days the good life is walking into a house of mourning with a casserole and sitting with people who hurt. Because we are people who understand that in the wilderness we need casseroles that glimpse the coming feast that awaits us. Can we 
be that kind of community. You know, you can still get into a small group. In fact, next week, the small groups uh, are going to start talking each week about the message that you hear, just, you know, uh, unpacking it some more in a group, praying it into our lives, asking questions about it. You can get into a small group, stop out at the information barrel out in the hub, Get into a small group. Why? Because we are called to be a kingdom of priests. You know, we say at Waterstone, the reason you should be in a small group is not so that you'll get good things from it. You will get good things. You'll make friends. You'll get good teaching, good Bible truth, all that. But the main reason you should be in a small group is so that you have 12 to 15 people in your life that you're a priest to. You serve them. You pray for them every week. You have conversations because our lives unfold one conversation at a time. And you practice hospitality together. You just move towards the other. You become experiences of God for one another. That's why you should be in a small group. Not for what you get, but for what you give. So sign up. Get into a small group. We are a kingdom of priests. The third and final reason uh, the, the law back in Exodus 19, we are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As God's treasured possessions, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now understand around this time, 1400 BC, cities were, were beginning to develop in human civilization. And the usual city planning went like this. You would find a nice flat plain at the base of a mountain. And on that plain, you could spread out. But the main goal of the mountain was so that most everyone in the encampment could climb the mountain, get to the top. And even on top, they would build towers called ziggurats, which is like a human tower. And the goal was to get up as close as you can to God. And maybe you'd find him. You remember in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel? That's exactly what happened with the human invention, this new technology called bricks. They built a tower went higher and higher and higher, and they were trying to get to God. And God says, wait, this needs to stop. This is not the kind of God I am, and this is not who you will be. And he, he, he messes up the language and spreads around the world, but it's interesting what he says. He says, you need to stop this because you're trying to, quote, make a name for yourself. Human technology, human culture, make a name for yourself. You see, God calls us to be different. He calls us to be a holy nation, distinct. What does that mean? What it means is that the kind of God that we worship, revealed in the Bible, is a God not who stays up there and we have to get as close as we can. Is a God who comes down. He lives among us. His name's Emmanuel, God with us. That's the true God. He comes down. He lives among us. He's different. He's unique. He's holy. And we are called to be a holy, like him, God. Which means what? Which means we can walk into a room and introduce ourselves and, and, and say to people, how can I help you? How can I love you? How can I serve you? We, we can go into a room of people, even strangers, and through conversations begin to, begin to think, because this is our mindset, how can I enhance you, be a, a priest to you, rather than what much of our culture is about, which is, okay, enough about you, let's talk about me. How can you enhance me? You see, because we are a treasured possession, 
Because we've been accepted and approved by God, we can walk into any room and say, we don't have to say, feed me, feed me, feed me. We can say, how can I help you? How can I serve you? What an amazing, amazing heart God can transform in us that we could become a holy people. Now, that kind of reflects itself out in two ways at Waterstone. And briefly, there is. It's why we as a holy nation can accept God's desire that he, he doesn't transform us just so that we can be a holy hollow and stay together. He transforms us so that we can create something here that attracts all the nations. It's why we have what we call global missions at Waterstone. It's why we want the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, to go across to all the nations, a holy nation calling all nations to itself. That's the mission. So I hope in your spiritual portfolio as you grow to live and love like Jesus, I hope that you have a, a missionary that you pray for every week. A missionary maybe that you give money towards to support their ministry. A, a, a missionary that you get involved in knowing their country and, and what they're doing and the difference they're making for God's kingdom. If you don't yet have that, just go down to our coffee area. Across from the coffee area is our missions area and you can see all of Waterstone missionaries. Their emails are there. Choose one and begin to be the holy nation that attracts all nations. The other way we see this worked out is through local engagement with broken uh, parts of our world, through uh, our local ministries that Kylie oversees. Can I just affirm you for one minute? Waterstone, you are so amazing at this. You know, on the first weekend in March, we're doing Feed My Starving Children. We need 520 people, and we're going to come, and we're going to pack all these meals and send them around the world to children who don't have enough to eat. You know how that usually works? Usually a church says, hey, we're doing Feed My Starving Children, and most churches get two to 300 people, and then they have to ask other surrounding churches and other community organizations, come, join us to, to meet the 520 requirement. Not Waterstone. We've put the word out. We promoted it pretty hard, but you responded 490 of you showed up. So we only have 30 vacant seats open. And they've been already filled by a group of doctors at CU Boulder. Sorry, other churches. Your heart is serious about this. And it's really, really encouraging. You know, there's more coming up. <laughs> Uh, at the end of April, we have the Nine Health Fair, where six or 700 people come into our building, and we say to them, how can I love you? How can I help you? Your physical health, what can we do? At the end of May, we have Royal Family Kids Camp, where we take 40 foster kids from downtown Denver and give them their first ever camp experience. And many of you will take a week off work and go and live with these kids for the entire week and change Lives. You can find out more about it. We actually have that out of the barrel too with Scott and Sandy out there, Royal Family Kids Camp. So all of this, what's the purpose of the rules? The purpose of the rules are to make us a treasured possession and share our delight with God. The purpose then is to make us a kingdom of priests so that the watching world can see how we love each other and they'll be drawn to that. And the last is that we can be a holy nation taking God's love and his justice and mercy to the broken parts of our world. So we read this at the end, after all has been said and done, Exodus 24, Moses 
uh, he, he reads the book of the covenant, this law, and he, to the people, they respond, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. <laughs> Did they? Do we? No. So what does Moses do? The, uh, Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, remember the blood that covers sin, the blood. God is a God of saving love by substituting the blood of the Lamb. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up. And get this, they saw the God of Israel. Well, under his feet was something like pavement made of lapis lazuli as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israel in his presence. They saw God, and they ate, and they drank. Wow. We know that we can, on our own, make it to God. It's so 2019. But what we do know, that was when God chooses to accept us, and he makes everything possible for us to have relationship with him through the blood of the lamb, then we are invited to intimate fellowship, even eating and drinking with God himself. The writer of Hebrews reflects on this amazing thing in Hebrews 10. Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Just before we sing, two things. One, some of you here this morning, you're still trying to get to the top of the hill. You're still trying to build a tower. You're trying to become a good enough person to get to heaven and, and have God's approval. That is 2019. That is not the way. You need to come to the end of yourself and you need to understand that the reason you become saved is not what you do but what Jesus has done for you. He has lived the life we should have lived and given that to us, righteousness, and he's died the death we should have died, forgiveness of all our sins. And Jesus wants to give that to you today. Some of us in the room need to just, during the song that we're gonna sing, just say, Lord, save me. I can't do it. I need what you're offering Please forgive my sins. Save me. And then there are some of us in the room this morning, especially as we were talking about that piece of being a treasured possession, you've been thinking, man, delight in God? I'm not even sure what that means anymore. I'm not even sure what that means. David, the great king of Israel, he once committed a sin of adultery. And for a whole year, he went on with his life and he put God on the shelf. And then through a hard word, a sermon preached by his pastor, he came back and he said, Lord, I need you. I need that delight again. In fact, Psalm 51 tells us he prayed this prayer. And here's the prayer that some of you need to pray this morning. Lord, restore 
the joy of my salvation. I've been far from you. Far from you. Some of you need to turn and leave that lesser liturgy behind. The things you've been trying to do to satisfy your heart. Turn and come to the Lord and say, Lord, be my joy. Restore the joy of my salvation. Let me pray. And then we'll sing. And during this time of singing, time for us to talk with God. Lord, your law, its entrance into our lives gives life and light. We know that the rules are there not for us to earn anything, but they're there for us to experience you. And so my prayer this morning for Waterstone is that you would restore the joy of our salvation. Help us come immediately directly to you for the deep hunger in our soul. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning, I just pray your spirit would move among us who wants to reach out for you for the first time and just say, Lord, save me, save me. Lord, we give ourselves to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.